Well, Exodus 4, Lord, take your word now and speak to us great and mighty things that we know not of for your grace and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, then Moses answered in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, well, the Lord has not appeared to you. Well, back in chapter 3, verse 18, God said, you're going to go down there and they will listen to your voice. He already told them they would. But here he's saying, hypothetically, what if it, it does no good? Now, you got to remember, 40 years earlier, Moses was at his peak. He was in power. He was a great leader. And, and he gave everything he had into delivering the children of Israel. He understood it. The book of Acts 7 says he thought all of them understood it. In Hebrews 11, also it said he thought they all got it that God was using him to deliver them from Egypt. And it was a big, giant goose egg. Remember, he killed an Egyptian and buried him. And then two Hebrews were fighting with one another. And he said, hey, you're wrong in your brother. Who are you, judge over us? You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian. And Moses barely got away with his life. And he fled from Egypt over to the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia today in the land of Midian, where he just took care of another man's sheep. And it seems like whatever self-interest or ambition, good or bad, that Moses had was completely gone. And he is now trying to weasel out of what God from this burning bush was clearly telling him he needed to do and uh, remember, he said, I don't even know who you are. I, I you know, I'm, I, I barely knew anything. I was grew up in the Egyptian household. I, I barely knew what was going on with the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now I'm living down here in Midian, not just in Midian, but the priest of Midian's house. The, the, the main number one religious leader of that area, he was his son-in-law. So no telling all kinds of pagan stuff he's had to endure through the last 40 years. Not that he's lost faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had a lot of gods to choose from in Egypt and didn't choose any of them. But he, he's deflated. And the Lord said to him, and, and this is amazingly gracious of God because I don't answer hypotheticals. You know, my kids will ask me hypotheticals. I don't, ask, I don't answer hypotheticals. People ask me hypotheticals. I don't answer them because, you know, when you start doing hypotheticals, it just gets weird really quick. It's just, let's look in fact. And, but anyway, the Lord's gracious. And he said, well, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And you got to understand how, how common day this was. Everybody had one, basically, especially for sure shepherds. And uh, it's, it's uh, usually made out of a mesquite type of, of wood. And over the years, you, your oils of your skin just make it harder and harder till it's like a metal rod. But uh, he said, what's that? It's like, yeah, you know, I don't even remember it's in my hand. Nobody even notices it. It's just like a, a guy wearing shoes or a hat or something. It's commonplace. And he said, cast it on the ground. And in obedience, he did so. He cast it on the ground. 
and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. This 80-year-old guy, oh, I'm, I hate snakes. I hate snakes. I hate snakes. I hate spiders. You know, I don't know how people do that. Ryan, Ryan's kids have those things. I'm like, ugh. Uh, anyway, but then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, I, I have seen shows, and they always pinch their head. They never grab them by the tail. That's, a, you know, they're just a pure muscle, and they'll just swing around, and, and uh, that's like a prime way to get bit, right? Grab them by the tail. That's not a very good idea, but this is what God commanded, and, and he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. It, it turned back. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, we're going to be looking at the three things, the three signs God gives to Moses to give to the children of Israel, to give to, give to Pharaoh as well. And uh, we're going to look at each one of them. Now, I, I think that you've got to be careful when you speculate too far or you, you, you mystically step over the line making assumptions that are not clearly in the scripture. And so you, you say, what, what's up with this snake? What's God trying to relate? And I think we could very quickly know Satan's called a snake, right? In Genesis 3, but then also in Revelation uh, chapter 12 and chapter 20, he's called the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, clearly he's called the, the serpent. But also interesting enough, the serpent represents sin. We uh, have a story a little bit later on past this in Numbers chapter 21. You guys might remember this where the children of Israel were grumbling and complaining and, and God allowed these serpents to come out of the ground. It, it appears that, again, God was protecting them in ways they didn't even know they were being protected. And one was keeping the snakes in the ground when they were there. But all of a sudden, these snakes came out of the holes and started biting the, biting the children of Israel. And these kind of snakes, it was a death sentence. And, and they, they cried out to Moses, and Moses said, what do I do? And God said, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and if when they get bit, they look to the serpent on the pole, they'll, they won't die. They'll be immediately healed. Again, a, a rather strange story. It didn't make a lot of sense until John chapter 3. And Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 said this, As the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And later in John, Jesus says, Those who look to me and be saved, referring to the cross, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so in that picture, on the pole, this time a cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus, in essence, was in our place, sin, taking all our sin upon him. And now if we look to the cross and see Jesus taking away all our sin, being punished in our place for all our sins, just by looking and believing, we can be saved. Remember the thief on the cross, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Today you'll be with me in paradise. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The guy's hands were tied, his feet were tied. There was no ability for him to do anything to earn salvation. It was by faith in the work of Christ alone that saves. That's so important. Because it's a, if it's of works, it's no longer a gift. And if it's something you did, it's something you can undo. But if it's a gift by the work of Christ alone, then it can be a guarantee that Christ started it, Christ gave it to us, and Christ is going to hang on to it for us. Isn't that wonderful? And so it appears here that, again, as we're looking through this, in my mind, it's sort of a, a picture of a greater deliverance from Egypt. This is sort of a, a localized picture the children of God, this time only the Jews, being delivered out of slavery, out of bondage. But we know as we go through the Bible, that's a constant picture of salvation. And as we come into the New Testament, Jesus, <laughs> Moses said what? God's going to raise up a prophet after me who will lead you into the promised land. Now, in the immediate fulfillment, that was Joshua. But in Acts, when Paul's preaching it, he says, and Moses, and he quotes that scripture and says, that's Jesus. You, you know that's the same name, Joshua, right? In the, in, in the Hebrew, it's Yah, God, Shua, salvation, God, salvation. We say it in English, Joshua. You say it in Spanish, Jesus. But since the Bible came to us in Greek, we stay with the Greek enunciation, Jesus. But it's Joshua, Yahshua, Jesus, Jesus. And so there is one coming who will lead you into the promised land. And, and in the immediate fulfillment, it was Joshua, the guy who hang out, hung out with Moses. But in the true fulfillment, it was Jesus that brought us in to not the promised land of, of Israel, but the promised land into a right relationship with Christ. And so if you would, I, I think this is a picture of Jesus. I think each one of these things in the serpent, the leprosy and the water turning to blood, each point to Jesus and the cross and salvation through him. The rod, this is an interesting thing. Well, I, I need a giant sign to convince them. And, and it's almost like Moses, as we're going to see here, he's trying to get out of this. He's like, Oh, so since that can't happen, I'm out of here. Not going to go after all. And God's like, oh, okay, what's in your hand? I'll say to you, it wouldn't have mattered what was in Moses' hand. Ah, comb. You know, my harp. Uh, I, whatever it was, God would have said, it's enough. Hey, little boy, what's that in your hand? It's a slingshot. That'll do it. You'll deliver Israel from the Philistines. Hey, little boy, what's that in your hands? Uh, just a few loaves and a couple of fish. Okay, cast them down. Give them to me. It became enough to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Hey, Samson, the Philistines, what, what, what's handy? Well, a jawbone of a donkey. That'll work. Start slinging that thing. And, and the Philistines were conquered and, and Israel was delivered. You know, we often come and say, but, but it's just, I'm so ordinary. 
And the gifts I have are just so ordinary. It's nothing spectacular. Why would anybody listen to me? Why would anybody receive from me? You know, understand everybody feels that way. It's, it's not like, it's not like there's, a, I'm sure there's some crazy egos that feels like I'm um, God's gift to mankind. I'm sure there are crazy people like that. But everybody I know is, is you know, you can ask my wife, I beat myself up after every sermon. I went on too long about that. I didn't say that. I preached too long. I always say that. And, uh, and so do you guys. No, nobody says that to me. But I, I, I always want to do it quicker and, and more eloquent and, and clear. And, and, and most of the time I walk away, and I, and I know God works through uh, donkeys, so I, I'm, I, I know he can work through me. But, but at the same time, you just are always going, God, please. Do something beyond my ordinary. Do something extraordinary. And God is saying, I am. Now, you're, you're going to love this. After this, the next time the word rod is mentioned, and hereafter, it's called the rod of God. In verse 20, and Moses went down to Egypt with the rod of God in his hand. Just like the little boy, when he gave the fish and the loaves in the hands of the Lord, these are now the food of God that he's breaking for the multitude. And this little boy also got to enjoy and eat all that he wanted to, but it wasn't his anymore, was it? It was God's, and that which was broken wasn't just a natural fish and loaves anymore, was it? It was the supernatural bread that Jesus provided by keep ripping and ripping and tearing and until it wasn't enough for the multitudes. And so, again, I've got a donkey jaw. I got a jawbone down in my, my office. And if you want to take a look at it, I don't think you could kill a thousand men with it, you know, even if you're Bruce Lee. You know, I, I just don't think you can. That thing would just break in pieces. It's, it's, once it dries out a little bit, it's very brittle. But it's a musical instrument. It's what I, it's, I brought it from Peru. But again, I, I think we all know that one guy against spears and bows and soldiers and, and equipment with a jawbone out in the middle of nowhere wasn't sufficient, was it? It was once God has delivered it back to you, pick it up. Pick it up now. Samson, pick up that jawbone. It's not just the jawbone. It's the jawbone of God. It's the jawbone of deliverance. David, that little slingshot, you try to kill little squirrels and birds and stuff, but I'm going to make it. It's the slingshot of God. It will kill a giant and deliver Israel. What's in your hand? Let me ask that question. Well, I can watch kids. I'm good with kids. Give it to God and let that be a gift of God. Well, I, I've got a guitar. Give it to God and, and see what he'll do. Well, I got a truck. You know what? Give it to the Lord and see what God will do with your truck. God, anything you have, no matter what it is. And this is, again, as we learn as mature Christians, just give everything to him, right? It's all yours, Lord. Give it to him, and then he can bless it all, whatever it is. Well, moving along here in, in verse 6 now. 
Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous. Ah, I, I think that would have freaked him out more than the serpent. It's like, man, this is scary. I got almost bit by a snake and now I got leprosy. Ah, this miracle thing is, is sort of stressful. But it was white like snow. Oh, man, we are talking serious leprosy here. Final stages. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. And so he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out in his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So again, maybe all this is is saying it's miraculous. The serpent to rod, rod back. It's just, it's miraculous. We could just say that. But God thought this up, right? I mean, all of creation, it, it, it gives us an idea of God whether it's a giant crashing of a wave or a little tiny insect or a butterfly or a hummingbird or a billowing cloud, all of it, God thought these things up from nothing. And all of them express a part of, of the way he thinks. So how did he think this up? It's scary. It's, it's a snake that can kill. It's a leprosy that, that destroys and eats away the flesh and, and, and so forth. Maybe that's it, but it is interesting once again, as we go through the Bible, leprosy is a way of describing sin. And a matter of fact, we have a great time in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, where it talks all about different types of leprosy. And then as you get into chapter 14, it says the process to go through when somebody's healed of leprosy. And when you look at that, and look at the cross, it's clearly a description of the work of Christ and the cleansing of leprosy. And so again, um, I believe this is a, a, a picture of God being our salvation, saving us from the serpent, the devil, our sin. It's him crushing that evil one under his foot on the cross. It's crushing all, taking all our sin, cast them as far as the east to the west. And now through the cross, he's cleansing us from our sin. And by the way, you can look at my archive teaching on, on uh, Leviticus 13 and 14. I do a topical teaching on leprosy. But in verse 8 now, then he will be that they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. So, there you go. You asked for a sign, I've given you two. And so maybe they will believe if they see these signs. Now, I, I just wanna stop here and clarify because the Bible's very clear on this point. That signs and wonders are for the heathen. It's for non-believers. A matter of fact, in Mark chapter 16, there in that chapter, Jesus is saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he says, as you go out and preach to every creature, then he says in verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe. So the unbelievers hear the word and they're going, is this God's word? And so God does something miraculous. Now let's understand, everything's miraculous that God created, right? I mean, just look at the, the solar system or look at how the gravitational pull from the moon keeps the oceans in place or 
you know, you look at a brand new baby being born, it still just blows my mind how a human being can grow inside and, and then be birthed. It's amazing. And you just keep going through it. It's all miraculous. So really all we're talking about here in a miracle is the miraculous being changed in a way that only God could do it. So simply, we normally sink in water, you walk on water. Instead of, um, you know, the Joshua stopped the, the, the sun in its place and, and kept the, the time going so they could fight in the battle. People normally die of, of, of leprosy. He cleanses them of leprosy. People born with blindness can see. These, these, it's, it's doing unusual. So, you know, the word miracle is actually not in the Bible. It's, it's just simply a sign. It's, it's something God changing the normal process and, and doing something different than the normal to show us that he is clearly here in the midst of all these things. So he, he says to the non-believing world, I'm going to give them signs to confirm that what they just heard is true. So let me give you an example. The guy is being lowered through the roof by his four buddies. You remember that there in Galilee? And Jesus said to him, you know, your sins are forgiven you. Rise up, take your bed and walk. And the Pharisees were indignant by this. Who are you to forgive sins? And so Jesus, first of all, said, here's the words, you're forgiven from all your sins. Now, who can tell? I can tell you all here, because you guys came to Wednesday night Bible study, everybody here is going to live two years longer than you were supposed to. Some of you guys are cursing me. <laughs> Some of you guys are going, thanks. But how can you prove it wrong either way? Right? So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Well, how can you tell? I mean, the guy's like, well, I feel better that you said that. Wow, I, I, I sense a, a you know, monkey off my back. But who can know? So Jesus says, so you can know what I say in the spiritual realm in which you cannot see or verify. I'm going to say something to you. I'm going to do something for you in the physical realm that is impossible with man. It has to be God to confirm that if it's true in the physical realm that you can verify, then you can trust what I said in the spiritual realm is also true. And God said, this is what signs and wonders are for. So sometimes when people say, well, I want to see a miracle, be a missionary. Good. Go to where the gospel's never been preached before, and you will see signs and wonders follow the preaching of the word to those who haven't heard the word before. That's what it's for. Now, in the church, we're to pray for the sick. We're to pray for those who are depressed, James says, in the same verse. Um, and we're to, we're to believe God for, for miracles of healings and, and whatever. We need to pray. But it, it's, it's not God being faithful and, and doing what he said if he heals us and, you know, he helps us be richer and skinnier and, you know, our car work better. And, you know, God's not now God because he does those things for us. He's God because he's God. But let's, let's face it. We can ask for things that we know may not be the best for us, but it would help us in the moment, right? More money, 
better health, better sleep, you know, whatever it is, you know, longer vacations, you know, all these things, yes, they, they would seem to benefit me in the immediate, but really, will they benefit me overall? Only God knows that. And we know that through hardship and trials and, and, and Proverbs, Solomon says in wisdom, God, God's given us all what we can have and still lean on him and trust in him. Because there's a point you can get too much wealth and whether you want to or not, you won't lean on God. And you'll, your, your, your lifestyle will begin to show that. And Proverbs, Solomon says that. I, I, I don't want to be so rich where I'm not walking in faith and trusting in God. So God knows how big your billfold can be and still have a full heart, right? So God's faithful. God's God. He doesn't have to prove anything to us. If God never answers another prayer, I'm going to trust in him. It's not going to change because I know who he is. I know his nature. Now, if you're thinking, but, but if I saw a miracle, it would cause me to trust him more. No, it won't. And I'm glad we're studying Exodus right now because this is a point that's made. Because they see miracle after miracle for almost a year. Then they see manna from heaven for 40 years. They get water out of a rock for 40 years. And you know what happened to those guys? They died in the wilderness in unbelief. They, they literally daily had the food from heaven and it didn't create faith to believe in God. Do, do you understand? So, so it, in, we know how temporary things are, right? We quickly forget the, no matter how great the thing was, the effect of it lessens quite quickly, doesn't it? And, um, and so here there are great limitations to this. The true faith is in God, in his, what he's done and in his nature. And how does that come about in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what it is. It's the word, the truth about who God is, what he has done and what his nature is. And when we desire something more than that, that's what Satan did, guys. Do you remember that story in Matthew 4 when Jesus was being tempted? What did Satan do each time? Try to get him to do a miracle when it would just be something to benefit himself and not for the, the will of God. So turn that rock to bread. What, what did Jesus say? Absolutely not. Well, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down. The Bible says angels will keep charging. You won't even bump your little toe without God protecting you. And what does Jesus say then to, to Satan? Get behind me, Satan. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. When the Pharisees said, hey, show us a sign that we might believe in you. What did Jesus say to those guys in, in Matthew 16, 4? He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them and departed. And then later, the people of Galilee, 
they saw all kinds of miracles in all of those cities around Galilee. And one of them was Chorazin. And he said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, this is a, this is a place that God destroyed supernaturally because of their wickedness. He said they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says, you Capernaum, remember that was Jesus's headquarters, the hometown of Peter. He, he, he says, you've been exalted to the heavens, but you're going to be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until now. And he goes on to say, they are going to judge you in the day of judgment because they're going to say, had even one of those miracles of Jesus been done in Sodom, the whole city would have repented. Interesting, isn't it? But it didn't have any effect on them. All those people that saw miracles that were healed by Jesus, they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Little effect the miracles did. And remember the children of Israel, they had all those years of a miraculous water coming out of a rock, manna from heaven. And what does it say in Hebrews 4, 2 about that generation? For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Guys, salvation comes one way, through the word of God. The preaching of the word, they receive it or they don't receive it. And then miracles, God sometimes does them to an unbelieving group of people, especially a new people group. Uh, wonderful stories, missionary stories. I, I grew up reading of miraculous things that happened for the missionaries uh, that were out in the middle of nowhere in New Guinea and so forth and God protecting them. Well, in verse 9 now of Exodus 4, And it shall be that they do not believe even those two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. And so, again, what, what does this mean? The water turning to blood. Again, I, I'd say we could just say this is probably a horrific thing to those living in that area, they probably feared something happening to the water source because the Nile River was 100% how they survived. If the Nile River wasn't flowing, it would have been a dust bowl that no, couldn't have supported life. But millions and millions of people lived along that Nile River and it was uh, sufficient for giant groups of crops and, and transportation and of course water to drink and to take care of them. And so that would have been a, a scary thing for something to happen to that, to get polluted in some way. But I, I say to you, this is a picture again of Jesus. Interesting, in John 19, in verse 34 and 35, remember Jesus is on the cross and he gets pierced with a spear and what came out? blood and water. And what does John say after that verse? He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. So John was greatly affected by that. What does John the apostle later say about this? In 1 John 5 
verse 6 through 8, he says this, For this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is true. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there's three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, the blood, these three agree as one. And so what does that mean? I'm not 100% certain, but I do know that when you look in the Bible, water and blood connection, this is it. It points to Jesus. Is it in a way that I'm theologically knowledgeable enough to explain it all to you? I could take a try, but I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. But I do think, again, it pictures the cross and it pictures the ultimate deliverance from bondage by our Messiah. Well, in verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, this is sort of an interesting description that Moses gives of himself. One, I, I do believe it was true, because in a minute, the Lord's going to point out that his mouth problem, his speech problem was from birth. But I will also point out that when Moses was 40, he didn't see it as such a, a deterrent to him leading. And a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, Stephen says at the age of 40, when he was ready to deliver Israel or ready to deliver the, the Hebrews out of Egypt, it describes him this way in Acts 7.22. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was mighty in what? Words and deeds. He might have had a lisp or he might have, you know, talked funny, you know. It's like that, uh, that, that professor who was out on a boat reading a book and he drowned because he, he, he had a horrible lisp. And he goes, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And they just, yeah, we, we expected that. You know, I'd be proud of it. But then he, anyway, I, I, don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what Moses' problem was. But uh, he he's now is using that as an excuse why he can't do what God's asking him to do. So at 40, no problem. Whatever speech problem I have, I can get past it. But now at 80, uh, okay, okay. They, they might not hear my voice. Okay, miracles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's pretty amazing with that simple rod. Okay. Uh, yeah, my hand. I got one of those. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, okay. I got a rod. Got a hand. Uh, yeah. I got some water. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, okay. You checkmated me on that one, God. But now, what about my mouth? Okay. I got you now. And what does the Lord say? Who has made man's mouth? Who has... Or who makes the mute or the deaf or the seen or the blind? And I would say that list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? Have not I the Lord? I've had people very upset with this verse. Looking at it confused and, and, and angry going, God made. And then they, whatever it was, my child with a whatever problem or my sister or my brother or whatever with a problem. And I just simply say, look, God doesn't make mistakes. And, and I think most of us have seen some blind people be amazing 
they probably wouldn't have been had they not been blind, right? But yet the sight, the ability not to see as the average person sees has caused them to see far more, has caused them to do less than they would have done had they had eyes, but they've done more in things they could do without eyes and became incredibly uh, talented and, and, and rich for all of us. And so did God really make them blind? Or did God just focus them on being who he wanted them to be without eyes? So you got to realize, guys, this isn't heaven. This is a momentary second lifestyle. It's a vapor. And, and so God doesn't have a problem saying, okay, you're going to live 70 years and you can't walk. You can't hear. You can't see. You lisp. You got a heart problem. Whatever it is, for a second of time, then I'm going to take you to heaven for a billion, trillion, Googleplex amount of years in a brand new body, and there'll be no pain, no sorrow, no deformities of any kind. So I'm going to make you this tall. Oh, I can't believe you made me so short, God. John Bonner used to always think that. But now he goes to Peru and he lives in Peru and he's like the perfect height going, thank you, Lord. See a lot of these American missionaries come out and they stick out like a sore thumb. And So again, guys, every hair on your head, God didn't make a mistake. Matter of fact, in Psalm 139, I don't like it in the King James Version or the New King James Version as well as some of the modern translations, but it says, you have formed me in my inward parts. You've covered me in my mother's womb. And, and some of the translations say they knitted me like a knitting in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. So David here is declaring, you, you, you be, before I started even existing, I wasn't just some blob and DNA took over and God's like, oh, look at that, oh, you know. He's like, no way. Every part of my nose, my ears, my eyes, my color, my height, every part of our thing, God has done it uniquely. A fingerprint, <laughs> our DNA. We know this scientifically now, don't we? That we are uniquely, marvelously made. Well, he, God says to him in verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. You know, again, Moses knew very little about God and he's learning about him. But you know what we're learning about God that we well know? Is, is God is, is not the kind of God that, that loves the, the eloquence. Jesus didn't come as a great king or a guy with an incredible voice or a Samson that could lift up things. Jesus came what? just as a regular guy. It says in Isaiah 53, it starts out saying he was ugly. It does say that. He was, he was comely. His appearance was nothing that would be drawn to by anybody. Jesus was just a poor carpenter. He, he had nothing because it was the vessel that represents his nature. 
He's not intimidating to anybody, not the poorest of the poor. He was born of a virgin. They, they called him a bastard. The Pharisees poked fun at that, that he, he couldn't prove that Joseph was his father. And of course, Joseph wasn't his father. But this is again, so Jesus came in that kind of vessel. And so Moses is thinking, I need to be this eloquent. I know what eloquent speakers, I've heard them in Egypt and I know what it would take to stand before Pharaoh and, and be somebody that he would listen to. And I can't do that. But we know God doesn't want that, no, do we? Paul the apostle who had those kind of abilities what does he tell us in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5? And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul said, I could come with excellence of speech, but I didn't want to. I could have come. He was a guy who had probably a couple of doctorates. He was a brilliant man, a brilliant theologian. But he said, all I wanted to do is come and not an intimidating way. I just wanted to come as a simple guy telling you about Jesus and him dying and raising again and tell you about his nature, all about who he is and what he's done for us and in and, and such a simple, intimidating, regular way. And that's what I picture when Jesus, I think Jesus along the shore of Galilee or in that area on the mountains there, I, I just see him as just a regular old guy that nobody uh, was, was impressed by him in that sense. Well, in verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send my hand by the hand of whomever else you may send. So now he says, man, you're just going to you're going to just keep putting my excuses uh, to the side here. Let me just say it plainly. I told you in chapter three, I'm past my prime. OK, I'm 80 years old. I'm not 40 years old. You know, you could have spoke to me any time over the first 10 years and I would have been open. You know, 41, 48, yeah, you know, 50s, ah, you know, I'm starting to want 60s, yeah, now I'm, I'm, you know, but 80s, now you want me to start doing a young man's job? Now you want me to, I, I've already told you, I'm not that guy anymore at all. I am so content just being a shepherd over another man's sheep. I am happy. I just want to stay here. It's not, it's not stressful. <laughs> it's not confrontive. It, it's, it's not ambitious. I'm not going to become rich this way. I'm just eating and drinking and sleeping and getting by, but I, I, this is fine. I don't want anything more. I do. I refuse to have anything more than that. And God said, sorry, you're going to go. And then he starts giving these excuses, and now he just plain out says it. God, this is a wonderful plan, and anybody and everybody on the earth is more qualified than I am. Later we'll hear that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. He, he really meant this. This wasn't, he, he really was an amazingly humble guy. He was a mainly gifted guy, but he didn't 
see it in that way. Well, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Look, he also is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and, and, and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. And he shall be your spokesman to the people, and himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take his rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. So Moses did not want to do this. He ran out of excuses. But again, the, being, a, being a prophet of God, to deliver children, or to bring God's word to people, even us as evangelists, Paul says, do the work of an evangelist, uh, endure the affliction of being an evangelist, but we're all called to it. Jeremiah wanted out and, and, and God, he finally said, you know, woe is me if I preach not the word. Ezekiel wanted out and God said, if you warn them and they don't obey you and listen, you're free of their blood. But if you know destruction's coming upon them because of their sin and you don't warn them, you are the guiltiest man. The blood's on your hands. And Ezekiel's like, okay, I'll go tell them. We know about Jonah, right? It's like, let them all go to hell. I don't want them to even know. I mean, he, he, he was, he was uh, going the opposite direction. Moses wasn't far from that. But we're learning here that, that Moses is not getting God's perfect will. He's getting God's permissive will. And it's going to come back to bite him later. Later on, Aaron and Miriam do a little coup against Moses saying, we prophesy equal to you. And when they started putting Moses down, his older sister Miriam and Aaron, his older brother, were telling him how it was going to play out. Um, they ended up getting spanked by God <laughs> pretty hard. Miriam ended up with leprosy for a few days. So it would create things that weren't supposed to be there. But in verse 18, so Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brother who is in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. So here we see Moses submitted to authority. I mean, Jethro might have been 10 years older than him. We don't know. But in this culture, he came to his father-in-law's house. His father-in-law is the head of their tent. They're probably nomadic people. And, and Moses is like, I still need, I'm 80 years old. You're not the boss of me. Yes, I am. You know, okay, can I go? Yes, you can go. Um, <laughs> understand that, that submission doesn't have a, a, a what's, what am I thinking, the word, um, expiration date. We all have to have that heart of submission until the day we die. And hopefully it'll be before 80. But anyway, in verse 19 here, so the Lord said to Moses and Midian, this is official now, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. And Moses took his wife, his sons, and set them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses took, notice here, the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those things that will not let the, the, my people go. But he will still not let the people go. So you're going to do all these miracles. It's not going to change some because I am going to harden his heart. And then shall you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord of Israel, 
is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now we're going to study this out because I believe it's seven times Moses, or Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh stubbornly said, I am not going to capitulate. And God said, okay, if that's the case, then I'm going to confirm that hardness to do my miracles uh, throughout um, for the children of Israel's life to be strengthened. Well, I'm going to start on this point next week, and then we're going to look at an interesting passage in verse 24 to 26 where God almost kills Moses um, over the issue of circumcision. And then we'll go into chapter 5. So, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight. And we do ask in, in Jesus' name that you would continue line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, continue to just speak to our hearts more and more about you, that we can grow in you and come to you and, and just be like Isaiah. <laughs> here I am, Lord, send me and then be undone in your presence. Send out your word tonight and heal every one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. And everyone said, amen. amen.